Welcome to another edition of the Engineering Leadership Podcast, where we bring together successful C-suite executives to explore their stories at the intersection of leadership and engineering. We believe leaders are built, not born. And by nailing the constants, we can build strong, engineering-focused leaders who are prepared for future success. Each interview was led by Doug Hawk, chemical engineer, business executive, and the creator of Engineering Leadership. I'm Ben Fanning. Let's get started. For today's episode, we have an interview with Susan Hertzberg, who is CEO of BrainScope. BrainScope is a medical neurotechnology company that is pioneering the objective assessment of brain injury. Susan was named an Entrepreneur of the Year in 2014 by Ernst & Young, and Susan's undergraduate degree is in psychology, and she chose the leadership constant of anticipate. Here's the three-bullet summary. Number one, as a leader, you should be able to evaluate your team members and how they will contribute to the team. This data collection is the start of anticipation. Number two, every person has a story to tell. Learn from those stories because this will greatly help you predict behavior. Number three, work culture is a social contract for how you're going to engage with employees. Enjoy the episode. Welcome. I'm Doug Hawk, the uh, host today for this episode of Engineering Leadership. Um, as you know, we are trying to bring together leaders from across industry um, to bring back their expertise and experience and passion for what we call the 17 constants of leadership in our engineering leadership framework. Um, Susan joins us today. She's the CEO. Susan Hertzberg joins us today. She's the CEO of BrainScope, which we'll talk about a bit at the end and the fascinating work they're doing. Uh, Susan chose one of one of my favorites, which is anticipate. And when I think about it, the importance of anticipation, um, you know, done well and at the right times in the right way, can almost look like magic, and it can allow teams to be to perform at you know, such amazingly different levels than their competition or others because they saw it coming, right? There's the old, you know, my favorite quote on anticipation is, you know, about Wayne Gretzky. And they asked him, you know, how he was so much faster or quicker than other hockey players. And he said, well, you know, it's all about skating to where the, where the puck will be, not where it's at. And that's probably one of the, you know, a great example of anticipation and how much it can impact your performance um, as an individual. And obviously what we're, what we want to explore is how does one, how does one achieve that? And then how does one, you know, inculcate that across their team to really get the whole company thinking that way and the whole team thinking that way and always looking ahead and really thinking about where things will be and not where they are and how powerful that can be. Um, So Susan, thank you for joining us today. And I'll, and I'll tee us up right there. Like, uh, tell us your perspectives on the importance of anticipation and, and how it can really drive drive a team from a leadership standpoint. Well, uh, thanks, Doug and uh, Chris. Thanks for inviting me to participate. Um, you, sold, you stole my thunder a little bit with uh, Gretzky there, but it's okay because I've got lots of other examples. But it really is... Uh, I, I I think about anticipate as part of that magic that you talk about of being able to not just act in the present, but also in the future. And I think we as leaders need to do both of those things simultaneously. And when you really um, think about it, right? And so whether you use the, the hockey or a, a quarterback who's going to throw into the future, what do they do? If we break it down in all instances, what, what these folks do really well and what I think leaders in general who anticipate well do is it starts with reading your own people. Well, it really starts with yourself, right? And your own self-awareness of how you impact the environment you're in and extend that a step further to your teammates and thinking through, you see, right, we're stimulus and reactions, all of us. Um, 
how people behave in different circumstances. And if you bring it back to your sports analogy, right, that's knowing your teammates and how they line up or reading your own offense or defense. And then you're really sensing into your competitors, seeing how they react and right quarterbacks or the passers are doing this real time. They know themselves, they know their teammates, and then they're looking at their competitors and then what's likely to happen as a result of those things. And they're throwing or passing into the future in anticipation of that. I think we do it as, as leaders of teams all the time. We take stock in who we are and how we impact uh, the system. We look at the team members that we have, their strengths, their weaknesses. We anticipate what likely challenges are based on the data that's come into us. And the more you take in all of those different pieces, and then you make a prediction. And oh, by the way, I think there are the most valuable companies on this planet today are using AI and machine learning to do that pattern recognition, because that's what it really is, to create a predictive algorithm of what's likely to happen. And that's why we get the ads that we get. That's why we get the Google searches that we get. That's why Amazon does what it does. I mean, it's all anticipation of a likely event into the future. That's, you know, pretty amazing stuff, but it breaks down just like it does in an algorithm to knowable things in the moment. And the more we can pull those in, um, the better our own predictive modeling of what's likely to happen occurs. We can start to move resources, uh, think about what our competitors are likely to do, what's going to happen when I put a certain uh, term sheet down in a negotiation. And now I, I gain some mastery over those things. Well, you mentioned you- you brought out some really, I think, critical points in your in your comments there, Susan. The when when I bring this up with folks as a topic, I I think, and particularly engineers, which is you know kind of part of our audience, tar, our target audience, right? Is they immediately sometimes migrate to, well, it's how do I get enough data? How do I get enough exposure to the market around me? How do I, you know, and all of those are true. And there are certainly critical elements of, of developing good anticipation skills. But you, you, you started first with something that I think is, is often overlooked and is probably um, the most important element as a leader and not just as an individual, right, is, is how, do you, how do you develop that sense of anticipation for your teammates for your for each of those position players, as you mentioned, across your team, and first understanding how they'll react to certain situations, how they'll react to different outcomes, what their appetite will be to internalize and build upon, you know, the insights that you might create through anticipation. And, you know, that's something I just I'd like to build on that because I think that is that's a critical leadership skill set, right? Of not just it's not just about being engaged in the future of the market and you know that's why it's so different than a futurist right where it's like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna gather a bunch of data and make these crazy predictions and you know some of them will be true probably and many of them won't um that's not what we're talking about right we're talking about how does one take and build a team that can have this kind of mindset and forward-looking view and know how they support each other in doing that Yeah, so the goal is to be effective, right? The goal is, yes, to meet the endpoints of however you've identified what they are, right? For any particular project or team that's being put together, you've got, you know, a problem or that you're trying to solve or a thing you're trying to build and and you know what finished looks like, right? Your job as a leader is to help guide that team to be as effective and efficient as they can in that endeavor. And so part of that, it seems to me, is to start by actually taking stock in what each person brings to the table, listening, right? As we hear it a lot about listening, what does listening really mean? Well, I I think it really is you start to have to make your own individual judgments on the strengths and weaknesses 
um, without completely pigeonholing people, right? There's got to be degrees of freedom in there. But um, that's the sort of anticipation is I'm starting to collect data, right? I've got this group of people. Now, it's not purely technically what are they capable of doing, how good of a coder are they or mathematician or whatever. It's really how do I think they're going to behave in a team setting, right? And how are they going to contribute? And what happens, and oh, by the way, thank you to my social psychology Clemson teacher, because I think it informs so much of what I think about today, is it's the combination of social psych and behavioral psych, right? When when I tickle this over here, what happens over there? As, as we launch into new teams, the more we understand the makeup of that team, not just what we're trying to do, the thing, but the interaction of the people, the more we can anticipate where we might fall into some problems. So I'm a big, I'll give you an example. I'm a big picture person. You don't really want me doing that finishing detailed level or early. Let's take a project plan that has 20 line items and blow it up to 500. I would, I not good, right? But if you task me with that, you're likely to see failure in your future. So what do, that's part of taking stock of who's the team. And now you want to put the best team on the field or play to people's strengths and weaknesses. And that, when it works really well, it's, it's silent and magical in the background. It's just a highly effective team. But we actually designed for it if we're really good. And that's anticipation. And that's, that's a great point. I, mean, I think the... The other sort of kind of juxtaposition that I've thought a lot about with this topic is, you know, look at the teams that had good market anticipation and yet couldn't execute as a leadership team to capitalize on that. And that's, I think, the essence of really using this, this constant effective as a leader is just like you say, right? So, if you, and there's the stories are endless in corporate America. I mean, if you take you know, Kodak. I mean, it wasn't like they didn't anticipate digital cameras or the or the death of film. They invented the first digital camera. So they had great anticipation skills in terms of the marketplace. They were horrible at using that to drive effective teamwork to do something about it, right? And position for success. Or you take the example of, you know, Apple walking into Xerox Park Labs and saying, well, of course, people are going to want a graphical interface that's much more attractive than these green screens. I mean, Xerox owned it first, and yet Apple's the most valuable company today, not Xerox, right? It was, a, it was probably a decimal place on their valuation. Um, so that's, it, it, I mean, you put that really well. It's, it's, it's figuring out how to combine that awareness of changes, developments, opportunities, but if you can't use that to anticipate and guide the team to accepting it and then internalizing it and maximizing that insight, then you've kind of missed it, right? So I think you raise a really good point. And that is we as leaders need to role model these behaviors to help inculcate them into our systems and environments. So if all you are is looking at being the taskmaster and all you care about is the results that you were driving for in a, in a, it tends to be short-sighted or, you know, near-term environment. And you're not demonstrating the pivot, right? New information comes in and you're quickly being adaptive and moving to where now the ball's more likely to be because of a change in condition, or uh, alternatively, from the start, setting an expectation of what you see as being likely opportunities, challenges, et cetera. So when those things happen, people nod their head like you're doing right now going, well, I think I, I already heard that. It's no longer a surprise, right? So now, now we understand and we move forward, but I, I really think it's the role of leaders at every level is to, is, is to role model, is to demonstrate, is to act on those things and to have the permission within an organization to do so. 
if we rigidly say stick to a plan and I think some of the examples that you gave do that it's like this is who we are this is our lane we never get out of our lane and look at what we produced and oh that's nice but nobody wants an Edsel anymore you know right because (laughs) because it's not because time continues to move and you didn't move with them you just Right. right in your lane good for you but we're out of business right right well, and you also mentioned, you know, the the psychology of of that thinking and how it impacts the acceptance and sort of internalization of 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 the anticipated change, right? Because so much of this is, you know, and so many people don't like change, right? Like they get into a phase where they're like they like predictability, certainty, reliability. You know, change is scary. It's uncertain. It's disruptive. Um, and that's, you know, I think it also gets back to, you know, what I we refer to as the heart of leadership, you know, those other constants that the rest are kind of built upon, right, if you would, in terms of, you know, building that trust on your team, having that connection to the people, and also doing so, and, and, and where I think part of these come together is is humility, right? So I think too often you get these folks who think they have this and they may have an incredible insight and a big idea, but it comes, you know, they, they lack the humility to kind of get their team to internalize that as, as their own mission. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh man, I, I think you're right on the money about it. Um, you know, anytime you think it's about you, you're wrong <laughs> in the end. It's not, it's, it's not about me. And you know, I just want to go back to what you said about change, because I grew up in corporate America and, and for so long had to listen to all of those presentations and leadership conversations around, we embrace change, we love change, we're change agents, we're, no, you know, authentically, most people don't like change. Scary uncertainty breeds distrust. People go to their dark place more to the light place. Uh, does it mean I'm going to be out of a job in the future? So, you know, I, I took a decidedly different tact. And, and in fact, this is also, it's, it all ties back to anticipation in that, look, if, if, if you say to people, look, the reality is nobody likes change really for the reasons you already said, Doug. Um, there's a small subset who do. They just they, they they're the ones running into burning buildings, right? Uh, it's, less, it's less than five percent, I think. Yeah. So <laughs> so if I put it out there that look, we're going to go through some changes uh, because we need to because of these things. One, I think you build trust because you're being authentic and and honest with people and saying the way that we get through it is together. And you're listening and there's humility in that to say, I don't have all the answers, but I'm certain that between us we do. And then we're going to move forward from it. And that has served me as a leader incredibly well uh, in the last 15 years that I've gotten to run, you know, venture PE backed companies of of my own. Um, In fact, I think people are really hungry to get engaged on that level. And when given the opportunity, they show up, they don't hide, they show up. Well, you mentioned doing this multiple times. I mean, what the other thing that came to mind was, you know, as particularly younger leaders, you know, that are sort of more on the, perhaps still on the management track versus what I call the leadership track. Right. And, and consumed with, what's in front of them. And the, like you said, that 400 line project plan, right? Um, so what advice would you give folks thinking about creating that space, right? Because what, what, what I've found is, you know, to do it, to do this effectively, to, to see over the horizon, which is kind of the overall category to put these together was you got that room. Like you do have to have space to dream, to, to, you know, just, brainstorm, think about, and, and, and like you said, consume tremendous amounts of market signals and sort of societal signals and cultural signals 
to sort of synthesize a perspective, right? But I do think any any advice or thinking on that, like where's where's your mind space to to engage in that, and how do you how do you not get overwhelmed with the the details and the the tactics? And as you said, keep that big picture view that that you focus on so often. Yeah, so um, it's a great question. And I want to be mindful of when you're really at the earliest stages of your career. And it is tactical. You're tending, you tend to get put into a slot that's more tactical than strategic. So there's some challenges to how do you break through that. So for sure, you've got to execute in, in your job. The things that you're being held accountable for and responsible for, you got to deliver. But then I think you have a manager, you have teammates, and often we get put on uh, cross-functional teams for some kind, some piece of an assignment. And those are opportunities for us to broaden our understanding of the business that we're actually in and the assignments we're actually given. And without being obnoxious or any of those things, because I really am mindful that, you know, when you're, you're entry level or a level above, the senior VP does not necessarily want to sit down with you, nor do you feel comfortable making those types of outreaches. But right. you do have access to the people around you. You do have access to your manager. You do have an opportunity to say, I'd like to learn more about that. And then to start, you know, um, sharing some of your observations, even if it's just with your manager to start. So what, what does a manager see out of that? Somebody who's eager to learn, somebody who's thinking more broadly about the business, right? And I think that's how you get started. And it can be overwhelming, but good engineers know how to chunk things out, you know, more than just about anybody else define the discrete problems underneath that ladder up to the big thing that you're trying to solve for. And I would say, you know, it's not about boiling the ocean. And all the other thing I'd say is every single thing you learn, you will later use again. Like none of it, your mistakes, your, your, your successes, uh, random, you know, trivia questions, somehow, it all fits into the model of the world later. It's just data inputs that as you continue to grow, um, add to your store, add to your views that then inform what starts to look like magical thinking. So embrace it all, you know, be a lifelong learner and be open to learning not just from leaders, the people designated as leaders. Be open to learning from anyone, anyone, from from the janitor to the lady or man who's in the kitchen and serving you their food, like everybody's got stories. And the more we allow us ourselves to be informed by the experiences and of others, I actually think it, it goes a long way to our ability later to predict behavior, which is really what we're trying to do. Yeah. Well, that, that leads me to a, a question I think gets pondered quite a lot. And, and I've certainly thought a lot about is, you know, I get asked quite often, particularly by, um, and sometimes even by my board, right? Like a lot about customers and a lot about competitors. And just give me a little bit of your thinking on how important it is to, you know, to anticipating things well, understanding those two things versus or contrasted with understanding culture, right? And and so, because, you know, I think culture overwhelms any dynamics from culture the other. Culture eats everything. It does, right? And it's, and it's, but I see so much focus of analytical time and, and research and, um, you know, trying to figure out where's our customer headed, right? Is it, and, and I think oftentimes I see those efforts fail, you know, cause um, you can ask the customer over and over, they don't know, right? It was like the, it, and I think back, you know, and I think 
Apple was, and Steve Jobs was famous for saying some of this, you know, don't, don't ask the customer. They don't, they don't have the answer for you. So you have to, you have to be, enga- I'm not saying don't be engaged with your customers. Of course, that's critical, but I don't think that's where anticipation of the next trend or, or demand or change in the marketplace is likely to come from. Yeah. So I agree with you. Um, the first thing that I've done in every company or function that I lead is uh, do a, an assessment of people, process, technology, governance, before strategy even. Just those things, because those things add up to culture. Um, and, and in the end, I do believe culture eats strategy, it eats, it, it eats competitive advantage, it eats everything. And it's why, look, I live in New York, the Yankees should win every single year based on right their payroll and roster, but they don't. They sometimes get beaten by teams who have far less in every one of those categories. And people go, wow, you know, look, those guys are really together on the other team. And, and um, that's culture. And it really is you when you see people who really move forward with a shared set of values, and that doesn't mean we're telling people what to believe. We're just stay, saying what we think are important values for how we behave. And then we have a shared understanding of where we're going to and why we show up in terms of mission. So Every, every year we build on one sheet of paper, uh, one piece of paper, mission, values, objectives, big goals, um, call it our compass. And I've done it in every company and everybody knows. And it becomes the way we hire, right? So if, if this doesn't, if these values, if this way that we have all created this social contract with each other, for how we say we're going to engage and what's important about the way in which we engage, then this may not be the right place for you. Even if you're in love with my technology and, you know, the, the economics of maybe an offer that I would make, you will not fit here because those are the things that ultimately, like I said, is it's a social contract for how we're going to engage. And the more we're together as a team on those things, the better we execute. And I've never seen it not be the case. And so, in fact, I am not afraid to share my strategy with my competitors and have been on many panels and I am willing to share way more. I don't care if, even though my investors want to see the IP portfolio and all of that, I need to know that the product is good enough that it actually fills the need in the marketplace I have at least one customer who's willing to buy it, right? And use it. After that, I'm going to really start with focusing in on engaging my people, making sure we're all rowing the boat in the same direction, um, anticipating the things I think are likely to happen in the future. That's where competition really comes in. And, and marketplace dynamics. I work in healthcare, highly regulatory, regulated environment. You have to know what's happening at a macro level because those influences, uh, you know, that's sort of like a Porter analysis, are bearing down on you for sure. And so the better you're able to anticipate where those things are headed, the more you can move things along. But this is where, coming back to your conversation on change, I actually think people are more able to adapt and change with you because they're, they're really in the boat. They're where we understand why we're heading where we are. And I th- I'm reading a book right now that's called start with why, and it really is um, right. The yeah. people respond yeah. to it. Yeah. Simon, his, his work is, I've, I've now um, the, his latest one is really good too. The the uh, playing the permanent game versus yeah, I'm going to read it next. It's it's fantastic, and uh, and I also leaders eat last is uh, is also quite good. It's it's much, it's it's uh, it's not as kind of existential as start with why, which I think is that's 
that one is just such a fabulous starting point for kind of anything you're embarking on. Right. I think is, and it's the question, you know, the what and the hows are really, really important, but if you don't know why you're doing it, you never really get that alignment. Right. And it's, and I think that is the key to getting over that fear of change and that, you know, it off, that's what offsets that sort of angst in many people's gut when they hear about all these changes is, well, if I know why, and I buy into that, as you said, right. And, and, and we've got that teamwork and, and those other fundamentals of trust and humility are, are, you know, in action amongst your team. Um, then people can embrace that and go for it. So I do and have done in every company uh, I've led a monthly all-employed meeting. Mm -hmm. And the ground rules for the meeting are the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I, I, like I said, I, I grew up in corporate America where what, what I was taught was when things are good, don't tell employees how good they are because they'll get complacent and won't work as hard. And if things are really bad, don't tell them they're really bad because they'll worry you're going to go out of business and they'll leave you. So just always, you're always sort of on the things aren't as good as they could be, but they're fine, like is where most people <laughs> tend to go. I have a completely different viewpoint on that, which is if things are really bad and you've built your culture right then people want to help you succeed. And in fact, I, I think they dig in even deeper to try to find where success comes from. Yeah. How do you, I mean, I, I think, how would you ever expect folks to help you get past that and overcome it if, if they don't see it for what it is? Right. And that's, I, I think we've watched, I mean, during this pandemic, certainly, I think we, I think there are many lessons of companies that, you know, have been in, you know, they're, they're in denial about the changes that are going to be necessary to adjust to this. And they're acting like their employees aren't smart enough to know that anyway. Right. It's like, what do you think? They don't see what's going on around them. Of course they do like own it. Exactly. Um, it's just that. Uh, and I think that comes back to, you know, the, the fundamentals that we need as leaders and, and the, you know, the, the psychology of it, of, you know, being comfortable, being vulnerable. And hanging out there and, and letting people, you know, and, and recognizing that, you know, it's kind of like falling in love. Are you going to get hurt? Sure. But man, it's so fantastic when it works. Like, what? don't worry about that. Right. right. Like, I, you just want to stay in that space. If you, if you have felt it and, and I really have um, had so many employees say to me over the years, like, it feels different here than any place I've ever been. And you're, you've ruined me. I'm never going to be able to work someplace else or things like that. And um, the joy that I personally get from seeing people accomplish things that they didn't think that they could do, you know, is, is its own high for me anyway. But it really is... Um, the, the, the opportunity... The, uh, the awesome opportunity we have as leaders to do more than just, you know, make the widget or get the, the end result, the financial return, is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary privilege that we get. And so, you know, I, I subscribe to a very simple sort of model of engage people to satisfy customers and shareholder returns. If we've built the model, right, we'll take care of themselves, but it starts there and it, we, and it moves, it moves that way. Not the, here's the end result we have to get. And I'm going to either cut my way or do something to, to get to it. It's not sustainable. No. And I think, I think uh, particularly in times like this, you know, which certainly I think even the boundaries of the most engaged leaders have to expand, right? We have to understand, I mean, the, the amount of pressure employees and teammates are under during these times is, is it's, you know, I don't want to say unprecedented, but it's it, it certainly in recent memory it is. And, you know, I don't think you can lead through that with strategy or, you know, tactics or execution. I think you have, you know, you have to embrace the whole person too, right? It's not about, there is no work self and home self and 
right. life balance. I mean, this is life. And if you don't really engage your team about their entire life and everything they're going through and, and appreciate that, then you can't anticipate how they're going to deal with things. And, and you can't put them in the right position to maximize their success and the team success, right? Because those other elements, I mean, they're not separate from work. Right. So, so I want to think about your audience for a minute, because this is something that comes up a lot and, and say, there's no pressure for people to share personal details of their life. They don't want to share. And it's important that we recognize and respect that not everybody is a sharer. Not everybody wants to mingle those things. But that's a different conversation than what you're saying, which is the masks that people wear. Like there's the mask you wear to work and the mask you wear to, at home. Transparency, authenticity, and purpose transcend, transcend those things. And so I think it's really important that we give people space. And then as leaders, to your point, I mean, whether you're talking about what's going on with a global pandemic, social justice, job market, homeschooling kids, if you've got kids, elderly parents like I've got, um, the pressures weighing on us in our lives in this particular moment in time, and to think that those things don't weigh on us, it's, it's folly, right? It's, right. And, and I mean, so, you know, you and I started this conversation informally talking about we've been road warriors in our career. We're on planes every single week and staying in hotels and eating other people's food. And we haven't yet gotten sick of being at home. But I certainly have employees who have kids who are four to six or whatever the age range is. And if they don't get out and they don't have separate space for an at-home office or uh, outside help that they can bring in, and now they're at home, they don't get the benefit of going to an office, which they actually need. They're in a very different place. If all I do is come at it like everybody's like me, you must be as happy as I am. You're, you're missing a whole lot um, about what's going on. And, to, and you're going to miss how it's going to impact that team performance. Um, at BrainScope, when, uh, when the pandemic was still uh, in its earliest stages, I, I think there were the people on the boat off of the coast of Washington and, you know, sub 25 cases in the United States and all. Um, I was already starting to think about virtualizing the company. And in fact, by March 13th had uh, stopped anybody from coming into the office. We had procedures around essential employees who were in manufacturing to put devices together, that sort of thing. Um, moved very quickly to, to use uh, collaboration tools like Microsoft Teams. Um, uh, just uh, in weekly all-employee meetings um, to make sure that we were getting the right information, keeping people engaged, and had conversations around how people felt as much as what we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, because we have a, a highly diverse work uh, team, when the news started to come out, about how people of color were being disproportionately impacted by coronavirus, I made that the subject of a meeting, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think um, having empathy and understanding about the environment and giving voice to it and its importance was something that really pulled people together in ways that you can't otherwise, I, I don't even have the language to really say how to measure the impact of it other than how thankful and the kind of feedback that we got afterwards that they had never experienced some, somebody standing up and saying something like that. And it just seems so natural to me. Yeah. We had, we had a similar, you know, we have, uh, 
1,400 folks in our company now and on the U.S. side that I run. And um, it was mid-March, about the same time. And, and one of the things that struck me, and I woke up literally in the middle of the night and was texting my my head of people and culture so, so she could help me run the numbers when we got in in the morning. And I said, well, how many folks do we have in our stores um, every day that are over 65 and exposed to, because at that point we had no testing. We had no, you know, we didn't know anything, right. Much. Right. And we didn't, we certainly couldn't qualify how how safe is that an environment. But what we did know is some, the early data we had obviously was the fatality rates and mortality morbidity at those age brackets was decidedly different than, than the rest of the population. And we had, we had 75 people in our stores um, every day being exposed to thousands of customers coming in and out. Um, and that very afternoon, you know, we sent out a broadcast company-wide message said, you know, stay home and we're going to continue to pay you. We don't know how long we're going to ask you to do this. And we don't know how long we'll be able to continue to pay you. We're going to, do, we're going to do it as long as we possibly can. And, and what we don't want is to put you in harm's way and not know how to protect you. And we, we think we'll figure that out over the next, you know, weeks and months. Um, and there was a lot of fear, I think, on many other employees parts, like, well, you know, how do we even stay open? Are we going to have enough staff? Are we, you know, there was a lot of reluctance to just make such a, you know, immediate decision, right. With, with very little information, frankly, but when you stripped apart, stripped aside those uncertainties and you looked at the, the fundamental human element of, are we willing to put employees in harm's way when we don't understand the situation? The answer, of course not. And the rest of the team figured it out, right? Yeah. We cut back hours in some stores. People had to pull double shifts. People had to cover other stores in their city. Maybe they had to drive halfway across town that, you know, into an unfamiliar neighborhood and, and, you know, work in that environment. Um, But that didn't create stress and disruption. It actually, as you said, created this sense of mission and teamwork of, hey, I'm working for a team and for a company that is thinking about protecting us first um, and making very rapid decisions to try and do all they can for us. Right. And it was, it was the exact opposite of what some people feared would happen with just, you know, taking that kind of labor out of, out of the team, right. Overnight. Um, But, and that kind of set the tone for how we dealt with the rest of the pandemic as it unfolded. Um, You know, that was one of a thousand different situations we had to sort of embrace and overcome. But um, you know, that was, those were the leadership moments, right. Of, you know, just having to make those decisions. And one of the things I did want to ask, and I, this is kind of my, one of the things we, we try to get each leader to talk about when we're, when we're beyond just the topic you picked. And that was, what was that moment for you where you made that transition or that switch? And sometimes it's gradual, but for many of us, it's like, it is a moment in time that's crystallized in memory. I know it is for me where I realized like the work and the mission and the, you know, the tasks weren't about anything I could do, right? It was all about having to make that transition from management or individual contributor to leader, right? And it became all about everyone else and not about me. Um, was there a moment in your career where that like that switch went off and you're like, oh, now I'm starting to get it and I better step up to this. And it's completely different than what I was doing 10 minutes ago. I don't Yes. Um, and I just, I, I'm just going to say that I was one of the people earlier in my career who would sit in the audience or read the management, you know, CEO's report. And it's, it was, it was a, he always says, uh, would say, uh, you know, it's all about our people and it's all, and I would think to myself, yes, you know, it's, it's all about you. You're the leader, you know, and that's, you're just saying it. You don't really mean it. And, um, you know, workers are, can be moved around and you don't really care about the, the human assets. That was truly what went on in my head, went on in my head, even when I was a manager and, um, 
probably even up to the point I was a director. Uh, I thought it was, I did think it was all about me. I mean, I, it's, um, I was lucky to get the opportunities, but I definitely thought I was the one making it happen for the team. And I became a vice president, vice president of marketing for Quest Diagnostics, my first more senior leadership role. And when the team expands beyond, you know, you're managing eight or 10 people, you know, to a couple of hundred, uh, it opened my eyes in a very different way about how one is going to need to lead. And yes, I can be that visionary and set, you know, drive for results and all of that. But it really, I think it was a combination uh, in all candor here. Uh, It was a point in my life where I decided to go into therapy, not for any particular reason, but for self-discovery as well as I was taking on this leadership um, role. And I understood, I understood even before I understood it, that the tools that I was used to pulling out of the toolbox weren't going to work. That it was, that I was too reliant on too many others. And I'm not a micromanager. I never was, but you know, that it just wasn't going to work. And I think the journey of self-discovery, self-awareness of the things that I do well, not so well, how I influence, you know, how I exact influence over others, combined with that very real moment of I better find a new gear or this isn't going to work out, was then. Um, And it's when things expanded beyond what was in my viewfinder of sphere of control. That was very similar for me. I mean, it was it was a, a recognition that no matter what I did, that wasn't going to get it done, right? And it was either find a way to get beyond that and uh, or fail. Yeah, <laughs> frankly, well, I'll tell you one of the things that early on, and I'm not sure if this uh, that I did this knowingly or it just happened because of how I grew up in the organization and had moved forward when other people hadn't. So I knew people at all levels of the organization. And I will tell you from an anticipation point of view, coming back to our topic, that being able to plug into people in lots of at different levels and uh, different uh, parts of, a, of an organization gave me insight that I otherwise couldn't have. You know, you're doing, one of the things you do learn as you, you rise up is uh, getting the truth becomes harder and harder. People want to manage a message to their boss. And if you think about how information ladders up, right, by the time it's coming to you, you're getting the most sanitized version of it. You're getting the version of it that people want you to have. So being able to break through that and have relationships at all levels, taking data points, and then putting it together with what you're hearing can be extraordinarily useful and something I recommend to everybody. Yeah, I, I do as well. I think it's the, I tell people it's the, it's the spin on that, you know, you used to hear, well, it's not, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I say, no, it's neither of those. It's both. You have to know a lot. You have to be highly skilled. You have to work at your craft. And you have to build broad, expansive relationships with as many people as you can, right? Not because yeah. you're looking for something, but because you're trying to learn, you're trying to appreciate the perspectives, you're trying, you know, and I think a lot of it, and I tell people over and over, most of the good things that have happened to me in life were when I was trying to help somebody with something, right? And it was totally all of a sudden through helping them, I gained this insight that allowed me to anticipate a completely different element of the situation that I never would have been exposed to otherwise. Right. And it was hundred percent. I mean, it just, and I, and I've now come to like, I think back on them retrospectively, but even now, like I see when I see those happen now, I'm like, well, of course that's happening now because you were trying to help somebody. And it's like, that's when, that's when so many insights can come to you. Um, So, so sort of maybe drawing a line between a few things. One is, I mean, I grew up in a culture that used information as a competitive weapon. I and its inclusivity and exclusivity. 
I know this and you don't, therefore I have power. So one of the first things that I did, and I, I spoke to this is, I started having all employee meetings, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the last 20 minutes, open mic on any subject. And if there's any way that me or somebody in that room can provide an answer, we're going to. So radical transparency to the extent that you can do that. Um, there's no hiding and managing of message. And once you democratize information, you've also now opened up the opportunity for people to share in decision-making or uh, identifying alternatives. And then you're able to take that information to anticipate and think about what your, what your best path forward is. And it really all comes back to that, right? It all feeds back. In the end, we are trying, you don't have perfect information ever. And so as leaders with imperfect information, we are trying to make decisions for today, but also for tomorrow. I, I run growth businesses. That's what I do. I build companies. And so I have to, I have to anticipate my people needs, my space needs, my product needs, all of it. And, I, and if I wait until the, the order's here, I'm going to be out of business. So that's anticipation. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great way to put that. I mean, I think, um, and in, in particular in, built, in growing and developing, expanding businesses, I think we have to spend a ton of our time on anticipation, right? I mean, it is seeing all that coming and preparing for it, recognizing that, you know, why do you walk into a space and you've got 50 desks and four of them are full? Well, because I know what's coming with reasonable predictability. And if we're not ready, we'll never position ourselves to win, right? And and your investors, you know, pe- the people who gave you the money to do those things ahead, they're, you're not going to last very long. Yeah. If, yeah, you you guess, if you guess wrong too often on those types of things, right. because you're asking people, you're giving them imperfect information, your view of the world, why we ought to do these things now, Right. And uh, and they're going to hand you some dough to do those things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking on that, so um, I did want to ask you about BrainScope because as I was reading about it, I'm you know I'm a little bit of a sci-fi geek in parts of my life and times, um, so I I couldn't help but have visions of the Star Trek tricorder magic diagnostic device that the doctor always whips out and waves over someone and comes up with complete diagnosis. And I'm sure, I'm sure we're not there yet, but it, it, it sounded like exciting progress that we are, we are advancing our kind of external non-invasive diagnostic capabilities quite a lot here. So I'd love to hear more about that. And just obviously, you know, if we can tie it back to the topic, that's great, but um, clearly you anticipated an opportunity there and, and the need and, and an application of technology. So tell us a little bit about BrainScope. Sure. So, so let's start with what's happening in this country around the world. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll scope it down to the country. Pre-pandemic, uh, seven and a half million people a year smacking their heads, slips, right. trips, falls, accidents, sports-related, whatever. Uh, Five million trips to the emergency room. Four million CAT scans. So a CAT scan to your brain is like having 400 dental x-rays all at once to just kind of give you a sense of how much radiation is is going into your skull. Um, And that's been the tool that is standard of care in medicine, highly invasive, increases your lifetime risk of cancer, brain cancer. Um, To do do something to, to assess whether or not you have a structural a br- injury, a brain bleed, and why that's important, brain bleeds will kill you. Right. All of the CTing in the world tells you absolutely nothing about functional impairment, concussion. So even on the most mild, which is 95% of the head injuries, 95% of them are mild. There's 4 million of them still getting CT scanned. of those CTs come back negative. So we're radiating a whole lot of people to to find uh, not so many. 
Um, so, so that was one. The and the incidence rates grow year over year. The number. Right. Of, so that's sort of a macro read of the marketplace. Second is patients aren't getting the information that they need. So you may tell me I don't have a brain bleed, but there's only a few, one in 10 that do. And you're not telling me what I need to know, which is, am I concussed? And what should I do about that? So they're leaving angry and frustrated. Um, That to me was the start of, that's a pretty interesting set of facts that I could get pretty interested in. Oh, here's this technology eight FDA clearances, 29 peer-reviewed clinical studies, 78 patents. I mean, just like incredible tech that hadn't found its light of day. And why? When I was looking at the company, they were focused on selling to urgent cares with the idea of, well, wouldn't it be great if the patient doesn't go to the hospital and we, they get checked out there? Great. Guess what? Company's going broke. Because uh, last time I checked, 5 million patients go to emergency rooms and, you know, 10,000 patients go to urgent cares. Um, So I joined the company with already sort of uh, anticipation that I, if I were going to lead the company, I'd want to change the focus, that I didn't think they were really looking at the environment correctly. Um, Never mind, uh, without getting too technical on the regulatory and payment systems of payers and how that relates to what we're talking about. All of the data points that I thought about aligned to going to emergency rooms. So I joined the company and within three months realized that I had, in some cases, the wrong people doing the wrong job because they were thinking about something else. And I needed to change that, that the culture was really icky um, uh, very different management style before I got there. All information was held by the top two people in the company and that's it. And, um, and always focused on the next application of the device versus how can we help people today? And, um, said to the board of directors and, and key investors, look, you know, I think I know what to do with this company, but it's not what you've been doing. And there's going to be a lot of change <laughs> coming. Right. And um, and so that's I started with people. I tore up at the first meeting the the mission statement, which read like by the way, um, uh, an IFU for the engineering of uh, the BrainScope device itself. And then there were no values that they really were focused on. And took the 45 people in the company and did a four month process on building shared values for how we wanted to engage and sort of set, starting to set about the culture work yep. as I was starting to make changes in people. And change sounds like changing the focus from the what to the why. The right? why. We rewrote the mission statement, uh, getting it down to you know nine words that everybody could know to talk about why we show up every day you know, to improve brain health and manage disease um, and uh, providing diagnostic insights. So I just gave it to you in chunks, but um, you get the point. And, and that became part of every single meeting that I then did was we talked about the mission and the values and, um, and then started to think about this pivot on customer and use getting some data, right? Some more data there, hiring sales reps who understood that marketplace is it's very different selling channel. Right. right. And we've been literally through a global pandemic, call me crazy, selling to emergency rooms, uh, had uh, more trash traction. And oh, by the way, you know, what I, what I said to my board early on uh, in the pandemic was, look, we're asking people to change their clinical behavior. Today, they send a patient to a CT. Average wait time for a head CT in this country in an emergency room is six and a half hours. With BrainScope point of care device, we can get them in and out in under an hour. So I would think that's important, right? Anticipation uh, in a global pandemic of getting patients who don't need to be in a hospital ED out of there. 
Yeah, and, certainly nobody wants to be hanging out in the emergency room. Now. Right. You know, so so all these pieces started to come together and the company has really finished this pivot and we're really into commercial execution. And it's a very exciting time for us with a team of people just coming back to our people and culture that are so incredibly aligned. In fact, during the pandemic, when, you know, we don't, we, we're, we're a startup, we don't have tons of money. Uh, I was going to furlough all but three of our salespeople and have one person per region. Right. And the sales team came back to me and said, and we had identified who the three people were and said, we've all gotten together. There were eight of them. And uh, we're willing to take pay cuts across the board to equal the savings that you're trying to get because the path to success and out of this pandemic is going to be having us out there virtually or otherwise, uh, building those relationships with would-be customers. And um, that's culture, right? Some of them would have made more money on the enhanced unemployment than they did with the pay cut that they took. Right. And that's, it's those leadership moments that are most satisfying, right? When the team gets to their, they make those decisions, they pull together, they sacrifice for each other. I mean, that's at least for me where I feel like, man, I must've done something a little right to get them to that place where there was trust and appreciation and humility and, you know, all those foundational things present for them so that they could, you know, come to that kind of conclusion. Yeah. I got literally, I mean, on this call, I I totally, it's like, I don't know how, you know, it, it was, it so struck me. The other thing I'll just say in a growth company is, and I say it all the time is, we are fundamentally a different company every year because there's no, more new people than old people in, in, from year to year um, until you get to a certain size, right? But so if, it, if you like this culture, I can't, I, I'm not going to be comes back to your other question. I can't, I can't be the culture queen. I can't make this culture. It's yours. It's ours. And if you like it, then be greedy about that, you know, bring in your new team members and may, and, and let's make sure we hire right to the best of our abilities, not just for competencies, but that fit, because that is the culture going forward, right? Because there's more of you than me. Right. You mentioned something that I I just want to touch on this and I know we're running out of time, but I, I, uh, how important do you think curiosity is at a fundamental level to underpinning anticipation? You know, our topic of the day, because you mentioned higher right. And one of the things that um, I always try to tell our folks that are hiring and interviewing and, you know, anybody making those decisions is, you know, look for some curiosity, like look past the degree and the skill set and the experience, you know, is there, is there fundamentally a hunger for digging into things? and going to the next level and layer. And because um, I do think that leads to good anticipation because it's, you're always trying to get to that. The underlying why is back to, back to those. Is, I think curious, I think curiosity is about that. And I, but I do think it's a really important element. Yeah. So I, so my, so my line on that is um, your resume got you into the room your values and curiosity get you hired. Yep. Well said. Right? Yep. So we got to be able to check the boxes that you have the re- requisite knowledge and experience, but then it's about how well you align. And, and then curiosity, I agree, is one of those things that it's, it's not just about the thing you do. It's, are you generally curious? And you can pick that up in people from the things that, they talk about and, and the questions that they ask. Right. 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 Yeah. I think people with a lot of a strong sense of curiosity are, you know, they're more worried about asking questions and getting to different insights and answers than they are about having the answer. Right. Which is, I think a fundamental of leadership too, right. It's recognizing you seldom have the answer, but <laughs> you can help a team get there and find it and discover it. Um, but I think, you know, again, it's, it's a pretty fundamental approach and, and mindset, right? Um, 
but not one that so many, you know, it's in every book and but when push comes to shove, it's really interesting. It really gets back to what you you started with, which is humility and where you yourself comes into this and how you think about that. And I think that is really fundamental to then how you approach all leadership is it, it starts with your own analysis of self. Engineering Leadership is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping engineers enhance their leadership skills. You can download resources to accelerate your leadership skills by going to www.engineering-leadership.com.